Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Very happy today to be joined today by my illustrious collaborators on the University of Texas, Texas Politics Project poll. Uh, Darren Shaw. Professor of Government at UT Austin. Thanks for making it today, Darren. Always fun, Jim. I know you're very busy at the end of the semester, enjoying your last sort of interactions with students. We love each other very much. Saying your fond goodbyes, (laughs) stuff like that. That's right. And of course, Joshua Blank, Research Director for the Texas Politics Project. Josh, thanks to you. I know you've been a little bit under the weather, but you seem good. I'm feeling, I'm excited to be here. That's what it is. Uh, Yeah, I think there's stuff to unpack there, but we're not gonna. Um, (laughs) So we released the latest version uh, of our poll this morning. Josh, you, you were keeping count a while. This is, do you remember, 55, more or less? Uh, yeah, I don't know. 55, yeah, you know. 56, somewhere in there. It's, yeah, we're in the mid-50s. When we get, a, I'll look for 60 next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll just, I won't mention it again until we hit 60. Yeah. Um, so we released this poll this morning. Uh, the poll was heavily oriented to the legislative session, as one might expect, Um if you're listening to this, I, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. um, I almost want to like greet a few people by name because, but, but we won't. Um, and, and you know, it makes sense, of course. And and there's a lot of interest if you're following the legislature because we're hitting the most frenzied stage of the proceedings. And as we record this on on Wednesday morning, it was a very frenzied, uh, hectic day at the House of at the Texas House of Representatives yesterday. Um, and whether we touch on that now or not, it underlines the fact that things are you know, tensions high at the at the Capitol right now. It's, this has been a very conflictive legislative session. I think a lot of it before yesterday has been kind of out of the public eye, or you have to be paying attention to really see it. But you know, I turned on the cable news last night, and there was the Texas was House us. or the outer area, and. You know, what looked pretty chaotic based on the footage they used, and even that is kind of contentious. Um, nonetheless, there's a lot of other different things in, the, in this poll as well. So we'll be delving into the results, as always, for the next few weeks. And this was a, a particularly dense poll. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. You can say that again. You know, jo- you know, Josh does a lot of the work, does all of the work, really, to program the graphics and get the data transferred into our CMS. And there's a lot of stuff this time. Yeah, and I mean, it wasn't even, you know, it wasn't even like the quantities, because honestly, we we always Have cover a lot of ground and do a lot of stuff. I mean, I think about this one, what was interesting was there just, you know, I think it's the nature of the legislative session is there's so many things going on, you know, you sort of have to pick and choose, or you don't. And we kind of didn't in some ways. We almost touched on a lot of different things. Yeah. And so now you can see that in that poll, and in this poll, and I think it makes it, you know, both richer in sort of what's there, but also a little bit harder to you know, sort of disentangle. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And there's and just a lot of, you know, and I was looking back at some of our other, other April or, you know, kind of mid-legislative polls. Mm-hmm. One could talk about the different, you know, consistent themes, whatever, 
But each one is a little idiosyncratic as the agenda is a little bit idiosyncratic. There's some continuity, of course. Some things recur. But there's always things that are a little bit one-off. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think the thing that, you know, and this is sort of a theme probably for a lot of this stuff is that, you, you know, I mean, just because legis- you know, an issue has sort of taken the legislature doesn't mean that it's taken the voters. Yeah. And so there's a fair amount of, I think, you know, at this point, especially for the people who are listening to this and who follow this process so closely, you know, there's a fair amount of you know, sort of discussions about like the length of fingernails in terms of like different policy approaches and who cares about what and what's going to, you know, and it's like, but for most voters, there's still just a very arm's length sort of understanding of what's ah, going okay. on here. I didn't really get the length of fingernails metaphor until you connected it to arm's length. Now I get it. Now ah, get it. there All we right. go. You, yeah, that ripened nicely, I guess, the mixed metaphors. So, uh, you know, so I think I think today, well, uh, that's a, I'm, tr- look, I'm, I'm looking for a transition here. Um, you know, this will be a little bit more of an arm's length day, although we'll, you know, we'll get to the fingers here and there. But today I thought we'd start with some of the big cuts. And there were other things uh, in the poll that have to do with the broader environment with the 2024 election that is that is coming up. Yeah. Um, and the news cycle has given us some direction. So let, let's start a little bit with 2024 and, and what the news cycle has given us. Um, and what I have in mind here is that Democratic Congressman Colin Allred from CD32, the northeast Dallas suburbs, basically is that district, Democratic district. Uh, announced that he is going to seek the Democratic nomination to challenge incumbent Ted Cruz for the Texas seat in the U.S. Senate that will be on the ballot in 2024. Um, So, Darren, I'm curious, you know, allowing that it's early, both in terms of the poll and and the larger – his larger position, what do you make of this in terms of where Cruz is, in terms of – you know, the incumbent that Allred, should he get through the primary, would like to take on. So let's let's talk Cruz for a little bit. It's been a little while since we've talked to yeah. Cruz, actually. It's true. Well, you know, I think the, the, the macro environment here is is pretty important. The last time Cruz ran was 2018. This is an off year, a midterm year, in which uh, the Republicans were defending. Donald Trump was president. Um, Democrats were energized. There wasn't you know, there wasn't really an issue environment in Texas that was all that favorable to Beto O'Rourke or to a challenger. It's not like there were singular or even multiple issues where O'Rourke had a substantial advantage on Cruz. But the broader environment was very good for Democrats. And, uh, you know, Beto O'Rourke was a really good candidate during that cycle. So that was a you know, in some ways, a scare of a lifetime. I think I probably mentioned before that in my mind, I'm always remembering Ted Kennedy's quote um, after he was, uh, you know, kind of late in his career. And they asked him whether the 1994 election, this Republican wave election in which he faced a reasonably close challenge in Massachusetts was his toughest race. And he said, no, in fact, his 1982 um, reelect, I think it was 82, um, was his most difficult because he just lost the presidential contest to Carter. He seemed vulnerable in Texas and, you know, the sheen of, I'm sorry, Massachusetts, the sheen of invincibility was kind of laid bare and, and he had a really tough time, even though he won. Um, He said that was his toughest race. And I always think of Cruz in 2018 in the same way, right? The, the 2016 presidential contest, although he finished second, well, I guess Kennedy finished second in 1982. Um, You know, the second place finish. Really say running against, running against, (laughs) let's see, who would have, uh, who would have, 
who would have Kennedy lost? I, oh, so Kennedy would have lost the Carter. Yeah, right, that's what I was going to say, and I thought for a second I was wrong. Yeah, run it against Jimmy Carter and run it against and Donald Trump. Donald Trump, right. kind of different. But he had a lot of baggage, obviously, <laughs> partly because of that dynamic. Had a lot of baggage coming out of 2018, and he didn't. He didn't look like you know Superman in Texas at all. Uh, Say the he, same thing about Obama. I mean, about O'Rourke and you know his second run. And, right. Yeah. I think that's right, Josh. And so, um, so in some ways, I I think that. 2018 was probably the Democrats' best chance to get Cruz. In 2024, looking forward, it's, it's not clear to me whether it's going to be a particularly good environment for the Republicans or the Democrats. I mean, I, if the economic anxiety continues, you can make an argument that the dynamic will be more favorable to the Republicans. On the other hand, Republicans own a little bit of government now in a way that they didn't yeah. in 2022. Um, so it's and presidential it, years in Texas better for Democrats, all things being right equal. With, with turnout dynamics, yeah. etc. So, you know, to me, it's sort of a, a middling year and a middling year in Texas is still a year in which you'd strongly expect the Republicans to win. In this poll, turn to the data that we have at hand, um, you know, with Cruz, we've seen this throughout. And Josh, I know, have had this conversation about his, his sort of intense support never really seems to wane. He just has locked down Republicans in the state. Yeah. And it is awfully tough as a Democrat to, to beat somebody who generates so much enthusiasm and loyalty amongst the Republican base. And so I think that's the the starting point. I've, I've been impressed with Allred's resume and what he brings to the table um, as a candidate. Actually, just between us hens, uh, we had a campaign simulation uh, in my in my class here at the University of Texas. And uh, one of the races was Cruz. So I had a half a dozen students who were doing the Cruz campaign. And I just picked Allred out of... Uh, you know, out of a, from amongst a lot oh, of Democrats, yeah. Uh, and Allred was the Democrat that the class. Was. So I know, markets. I know more about Allred now than you know, thanks to my undergraduates yeah. here than than I otherwise would have. And I got to tell you, the the campaign plan that they put together was was pretty impressive. I think someone from the Allred campaign ought to contact uh, members of my class for that. But but he's still a heavy underdog, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything everything you say. I mean, I think the only thing you know that that's interesting is you know at the meta level, the fact that we're sitting here in, before the summer of 2023, and there are multiple Democratic candidates, you know, of seemingly pretty reasonable, if not high quality, who are saying right now they're in. You know, he's coming from a safe congressional seat, a redrawn safe congressional seat. Uh, you know, I think that's telling at least at how they see. The race that they see an opportunity there, whether it be Colin Allred or Senator Gutierrez potentially. I mean, there there are people you know ready to throw their hat in a ring. When you know, usually Democrats are like, okay, so who's up? Who's going to do this? You know, I mean, a lot of the conversations that are normally going on at this point are about who might the Democrats find. You know, who can raise money, who can be a serious candidate, and the fact that you know, again, right now it's actually looking like a kind of competitive primary for Democrats this far out. So it's to me that they see some opportunities, and I think the opportunities are probably in the thing, you know, like I think the one opportunity that they have outside of, you know, whatever the election dynamics are around the economy is, you know, Trump is super unpopular among Texas Democrats. Cruz is super unpopular among Texas Democrats. So no matter who Democrats put up, if that's the top of the ticket, I think there's going to be a mobilization. And so I think that the candidates are probably seeing that as, you know, what their chances to make the starting point in the race more favorable, if not yeah. winnable. More favorable starting points. Well, Talk is there any reason to expect? I mean, that you know, what what is going to be at the top of the ticket will be the presidency, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I think that's going to be pretty heavily overdetermining, right? Yeah, I think uh, either we're a political or the Hill had the the Texas race as the ninth most competitive race, and and it might 
be the Democrats' best chance for a pickup, I think, thinking back across that list. There's states like West Virginia and yeah, uh, Montana, Ohio, et cetera. Right. And, and either Florida or Texas are, are pegged as, I think, the only two out of the top 10 races where the Democrats might be picking up a seat. I, you know, we talk a lot in terms of floors and ceilings. Yeah. I think the great thing about 2024 from the Democrats is that the floor is higher mm-hmm. uh, because, as, as Josh properly mentioned, there's a lot of antipathy towards Cruz and a lot of antipathy towards Trump if Trump is indeed the nominee, which we'll probably right. turn to in a few minutes. Um, so that that kind of gets you to 45%. Yeah. Um, but I, I continue to think that that also limits your ceiling in some ways. Now, to be fair... I'm not quite sure what the Democratic ceiling is in Texas these days. It's clearly not 50% at this point, but... Um, so, yeah, how would... We- <laughs> well, this, right. is what, this is where it gets interesting to me. I mean, to some extent, I think, you know, what's interesting is that a lot of what brought O'Rourke so close to Cruz was the fact that, you know, independents had overwhelmingly positive views of, of O'Rourke by the end of that campaign in 2018 and very negative views of Cruz. The negative views of Cruz remained and then the negative views of, of O'Rourke emerged basically over the next few years, at which point, you know... Ultimately, neither they like neither Abbott nor O'Rourke, but you know it's a bad year for Democrats among other things, right? Right. Without all, a, yeah. Already benefits from coming into this almost to some extent as I mean you don't you normally say this, but a little bit more unknown. And again, as you pointed out, and I agree with with a resume that looks just real nice. You know, it's a real good look. You know, if you kind of go through his history and come into it, you know, for some it's not easy to sort of pick him out right away and start you know. I would say chipping and chipping at him. We'll see. I mean, I'm kind of curious to see what Cruz does next. You know, in terms well, of- I mean, I think you know, I mean, I, I you know, I, I think what they do for a while is just wait, right? Yeah. Because you know, it's it's interesting how similar these conversations are every cycle, and particularly with Cruz, right? I mean, you know, if I had a dime for every conversation I had in 2018, you know, particularly with some reporters that started with. But look, everybody hates Ted Cruz. Yeah. Even his own guys hate him. He must be, you know. And, you know, I just don't think that's as as operative as as people think it is in terms of you – know, there's a difference between Republicans in the Senate thinking Cruz – no, not liking Cruz or whatever. And even Republicans in Texas saying, yeah, you know, he's – you know, whatever he can be annoying, or you know, I have these thoughts about him. It, it doesn't show up in his numbers, as you were saying. And it's one thing to say, yeah, you know, I, I wish Ted Cruz was a little different. And it's a whole other thing to say, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna shop. Yeah, yeah. I think the, you know, the interesting thing. It, this wasn't the case, obviously, in 2018 when um, O'Rourke came on so strong that there really was nothing. The, the strategic imperative for the Cruz campaign came to be negatively defining O'Rourke. That was it. Because he wasn't going to move his own numbers. And O'Rourke was so new that, that you know, the Cruz campaign could do some damage to those favorable. Now, they actually didn't do a whole lot of damage. They just sort of hung on. But but in, in this cycle, there's there's a little more of an interesting dynamic, which is if you're the Cruz campaign, do you pay attention at all to the Democratic campaign, right? In, in other words, if if Cruz anticipates a strong challenge from Allred or, or one of the other candidates, then there's a lot of incentive for him to go out there and, and – try to define them negatively, right? A, a Biden clone, someone who's just going to, you know, rubber stamp this agenda in the Senate could be the decisive Democratic vote in the Senate, et cetera. But uh, on the other hand, there's something of an incentive not to say anything if you don't think that candidate in that race is going to get anything beyond whatever, you know, yeah, Biden my- or whomever the Democrat is at the presidential level, right? So so it's a little, it, it's an interesting dynamic. And, you know, at the, at the least, we're going to get a 
kind of a nothing burger campaign. At the most, we'll get probably a highly negative campaign, uh, right. l- less from the Democrats and more from the Republicans. And I don't mean that as an indictment on the Republicans. I mean it as a yeah. kind of a statement of the strategic position yeah. of the Cruz campaign. Seems to me it doesn't make any sense for them to do much, right? You know, in the yeah, early you don't phases even know, of this. Right. We, we're as we mentioned, we're impressed with Allred's resume, but but we have no idea how he's going to emerge as a campaigner, if he's even going to win the Democratic. Right. I mean, so. I, you know, I was going to, you know, we should move on, but I, you were saying earlier, Josh, about, you know, I mean, there's this, you know, half full, half empty with somebody like Allred, where on one hand, yes, is not, you know, because if nobody knows who you are statewide, your negatives aren't going to be very high to begin with. That looks like an advantage for a while unless they get, you know, your opponent gets yeah. in front of you and the Cruz campaign has a lot of time to do that. Yeah, there's a lot if, of Cory comes to at that. the very beginning, there's a lot of Cory Booker in, in Allred's kind of profile. And I, I mean that in that I always thought Booker was someone to really keep an eye on in twenty twenty and maybe even moving forward, but just never really caught on. And that, that would be the downside for for Allred that great resume, but for some reason yeah. doesn't really catch on. But we'll see. Yeah. 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 I mean, I don't know. I think he looks like a pretty strong candidate, I honestly. Agree. I, I agree. think, you yeah. know, and, and the one advantage he has over some of the other people he's going to be running against is his money's already transferable, right? I mean, it's like a little technical stuff, but I mean, he right. has some advantages built in here that... Well, that's an important technical point. <laughs> you know. Right. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, some more things, you know, we'll see what Schumer has to say and what the, you know... Where the where the the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee sort of lines up on this, he seems like their kind of candidate mm-hmm. to me. But I I was trying to do a little digging around and see if I could figure out the, what the leading indicators have been like. So if you're a listener and you're in that camp and you know something, send me an email. I won't I won't give you up. So so Darren, let's go ahead. As long as we're talking about 24, let's let's talk about about Trump and let's talk you know for a couple minutes, you know about what we saw in. These approval, these uh, favorability ratings of declared and all but declared Republican candidates that we have in here. We had kind of a a theory of the case here, right, <laughs> in terms of how we approach this, and that you know I, you know I got a text from one of my very insidery political junkie friends late last night after we sent out the advisory on the poll, going, "What did you do, trial ballots?" <laughs> and I said. Like we never do, uh, you know, as always, <laughs> yeah. I'm happy to say that we did not. But, you know, I shouldn't be all like, oh, taking the high ground here because we did do fave on fave ratings for, for all of these, uh, for all of these potential candidates. And, and uh, honestly, it, there, there are some interesting things in here, I thought. I mean, let's start with Trump. I mean, Trump, we've got the, uh, obviously a lot of data on Trump at this point. Right. So, uh, you know, Trump's data, what's interesting is if you look at the, um, you know, over time um, movement in, in Trump's favorable, unfavorable numbers. So this is, you know, for listeners out there, we're simply asking people, uh, it's not a job approval question, which is kind of a performance evaluation. This is, you know, generally speaking, are you favorable or unfavorable towards a candidate? Those things often move together, but there are times when they diverge. There were a lot of people who, um, you know, for instance, like George W. Bush personally, but did not like his performance as president. You remember that. Yeah, I do remember that. So, uh, although they actually tend to come together after a point in time, uh, if you do a lousy job for long enough, people tend to not like you personally either. (laughs) (laughs) They converge in in an unhappy way. Yeah, I found that in my department. Um, (laughs) Not really, not really. I I just. Um, but, like, but my colleagues love me. Yeah, exactly. So. Um, but <laughs> if you look at the if you look at the numbers, it's there's really this jarring in in 2016. As as Trump is he's won the nomination. He's the Republican candidate in Texas. His his net 
favorable minus unfavorable. So a negative number here indicates uh, plurality of people saying that they're unfavorably predisposed to the candidate. Um, he goes, last three polls we did, February, June, and October of 2016, he goes minus 30, minus 25, minus 27. Now, this is amongst all, you know, all Texans that we were interviewing right. at the time. So but those are colossally bad numbers for a challenger running for president. I, I, I hesitate to say they're unprecedented just because I, I can't really think of the right. entire scope, but I find it hard to believe anybody's got worse numbers. That's one of those Trump things, though, right? I mean, yeah, Trump, right. people had a lot of well-developed opinions and, and, about him before right. he was a political Well, some figure. of that, well, and also there's some of that, and then at that point, I think there's also a lot of projecting going on, because in that period, a lot of the discussion, especially among, you know, in terms of negative views among Republicans, was this guy's going to lose. Yeah. So, I mean, there's I a certain amount fair. of... Yeah. Right. But he had the fortune of running against Hillary Clinton, whose favorability ratings were comparable, um, you know, as the Democratic candidate. But as soon as the election's over, um, you know, you go to February 2017, all of a sudden he goes from minus 27 on the eve of the election to minus one. And he's minus yeah. two, zero, 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 five. He never gets out of uh, single digits in the in the net fave-unfave after that point in time. And so the the you know, what's the lesson here? The rallying of Republicans and conservatives around the Trump uh, presidency and around Trump's personality is really striking. And that persists. It, it didn't matter what happened during his presidency. Uh, January 6th barely, you know, dented the, the favorability ratings uh, within the state of Texas. Uh, you know, what's his famous line? He says, I could, uh, you know, shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue in New York City and, and right. still have, you know, support of my party. And there's some evidence of that here. It, 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 he seems to be, you know, kind of immune, um, you know, a Teflon ironically, you know, we think of a Teflon as meaning you never get any bad stuff, but here it's just Teflon meaning nothing sticks, positive yeah. or negative. It's sort um, of more an armor than a yeah. <laughs> than a coating. I think. So, yeah. and so you see in this poll, you know, we've got him at, uh, you know, 40% very unfavorable, another 8% somewhat. So he's got 48% unfav, but he's 27% very favorable, 15% somewhat. So he's 42% favorable. So he's minus six and Texas is not a great state for him, especially given the partisan profile. Um, having said that, uh, you know, you look at Ron DeSantis, the main challenger at this point, and DeSantis is 40% favorable, 35% unfavorable. What's striking with the DeSantis numbers is only 11% say they do not have an opinion of DeSantis. Yeah. So he's plus five overall. There's some interesting political science written a long time ago by Larry Bartels. It's, it's actually a book about momentum in presidential primary dynamics. And there's a small piece in the book that I've never forgotten where in discussing momentum, Bartels distinguishes between three types of presidential contests, one in which there's no dominant candidate. There's, there's just a bunch of sort of lesser known candidates. And I think his example historically is 1976 on the, on the Democratic side. Yeah. Then there's a contest where there's what he calls one and a half candidates. So there's a front runner and then a plausible challenger, but maybe not on par and serious-ish, yeah. And and uh, the, I think the historical example for Bartels is 1984, where you've got Walter Mondale and then Gary Hart. Um, I, I would say this was sort of the dynamic early on in in 2008, where you had Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. It wasn't clear that Obama was going to catch fire. And then you've got the third type, which is the two giants. And the classic example historically is Reagan and Ford. Right. And the idea that Bartels weaves is that the the chances for momentum candidates are really diminished when you've got two titans, when you've got two candidates that everybody's familiar with. Right. And the reason for that is, is that, you know, momentum is a function of candidates kind of catching fire and people aren't paying attention, learning about yeah. a candidate. And so I'm struck, and I'll, I'll just put this out there for, for both you guys as well as the listeners, you know, what kind of race do we have here? I mean, I, I 
thought for a while this is basically a one and a half, classic one and a half. Yeah. Um, so there's some momentum potential, and there may still be. But boy, DeSantis has pretty high recognition numbers. Yeah, I mean, we um, talked about that last time because he and he was about here last time. I think maybe he's you know the the don't knows have maybe gone down a little bit. I don't. I yeah, I mean, there, I mean, you know, truthfully, you know, from a statistical standpoint, you know, not to be like that, but I mean, among Republicans, their numbers are not terribly distinct. I mean, right. Trump is yeah. at seventy-eight favorable, sixteen unfavorable among Republicans. DeSantis is at seventy-three ten. I mean, the difference between those numbers, in some ways, is actually one of the little bit higher name ID for the president yeah. over, you know, the governor of another state in Texas. But yeah. they're both almost universally known and universally liked. I mean. What strikes me about these results in some ways is actually, you know, in some, in some ways is how strong the Republican field is looking. I mean, Donald Trump creates this sort of interesting center of gravity around it all, right? I mean, to your point, sort of the one plus tight yeah. and not. But I mean, you know, you've got DeSantis sitting at 73.10. Nikki Haley, 46% of Republicans have a favorable view of her. Only 17% have an unfavorable view. Uh, Senator Scott, 46 favorable, six unfavorable. So the rest don't yeah. know him yet. I mean. You know, I mean, I mean, it's like spoiled for choice, but there's actually a pretty solid number of candidates there within the Republican universe. And to your point, you know, the overall numbers, you know, Trump's sitting at 42, 48 in Texas. You know, I mean, Abbott's at 46, 41. He's been kind of floating around those same areas, being a little bit underwater, a little bit overwater. And, you know, in, the, in a good year or even not, he's likely to win the state by, you know, six to 12 points, right? So you don't need to have this huge net favorability. But what is interesting, I think, is just the fact that Except for Mike Pence. Well, I was just okay. going <laughs> to just gonna raise that. As, Except you know. for Mike Pence, you know, these, there's, a, there's a good number of Republican candidates as far as, you know, I think Republican voters are concerned right now. I mean, look, it's easy to make, I mean, you know, we have Pence, you know, total favorable 30, total unfavorable 45. And what is he among Republicans? Among John? Republicans, he's 41, 36. But what's so striking is that his numbers get worse among the more conservative voters. So among, yeah. among people who describe themselves as extremely conservative, he's actually underwater. 34 favorable, 41 unfavorable, which is just really amazing to me for a guy who really yeah. built his career in the trenches of, you know, kind of. Well, you know, I was going to say, you know, think, you know, I've had, a, I've, I'm playing with different takes yeah. on this. I mean, on one hand, when I first saw these, I was like, you know, poor Mike Pence, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, made his play. You know, if you read, I've read a lot of those behind the scenes, like transition, you know, Trump campaign to the White House thing. I mean, Pence was very reluctant to do this and then got kind of talked into it and then kind of, you know, per the more negative versions of him, kind of drank the Kool-Aid. And now he's kind of a man without a lane, right? Um, as illustrated by your sort of look at look at his views of him and the intensity. But I also thought, you know, it also kind of disrupts the whole lane metaphor. I mean, and I think in a way it's like Trump is just such a disruptive center of gravity am i i mean am i overdoing that i mean it just seems like well i think i agree no he, I mean, he just is like you know it's like a star trek episode where they go into some part of space and all of a sudden like up is down and down is up and everything works in a in a slightly different way because there's this thing no yeah i mean right? I, but i mean i think there's no way to look at these numbers i mean you know in some ways i mean just as in collecting the data what you're looking at is you're saying okay Where's Trump among these core groups within the Republican electorate, Republicans, strong Republicans, conservatives, very conservative? And then you say, where's everybody else? And it's and it's in the comparison. We're saying, you know, we're not talking about DeSantis' yeah. amazing numbers on its own, although they're very – I mean, they're 
phenomenal, again, for an out-of-state for governor. A guy who's the, yeah, for a guy who's the governor of Florida. We talked about this last right? time, but, it's but, where, but it's, it is a thing. But the thing, that we, the thing that we look at this and say, oh, these are like almost statistically indistinguishable from Trump. The other thing I'm thinking about in this also into this whole sort of Trump's gravity and the lane thing is it's like, you know, well, these candidates have very solid starting point numbers here. I mean, I'll say like, you know, Colin Allred would take any of these numbers among Democrats right now, jumping <laughs> in the Senate race, right? right? And yet the other side of it is like, okay, but what does a Republican primary with Donald Trump look like? It's going to be ugly. It's going to be, you know, kind of messy. And and how does that – I mean, it's hard not to think about the dynamics of who becomes Trump's target depending on who seems the strongest. Well, yeah. the, this is – I think this is – two. What does that do to these numbers? Yeah, two quick observations. The first is that, look, Trump's pernicious effect on the Republican primary right now – there there probably be several. But one is that second-choice Trump voters – and we don't show this, but other polls have showed this – go to DeSantis. So if you're not DeSantis and you're not Trump, why would you criticize Trump? All you're going to do is, one, attract his wrath, and two, if you shake voters loose, they're going to DeSantis. So there's a heavy incentive right now in the Republican primary to go after DeSantis because DeSantis' second-choice voters aren't necessarily Trump. So if you go after DeSantis and you shake him up, his voters come loose, they may go to the Nikki Haley's, to the Tim Scott's, to these other candidates— so I, I think, but that's, unless Trump is not in the race, it just doesn't help you. No, no, that's enough. yeah. No, this is this is the the reason why you're getting lots of people going after DeSantis rather than Trump. I think right now, and I think we should expect that. The other, the Pence thing is interesting because Pence accrues all of the negatives of Trump. In other words, you know his his very unfavorable ratings right. are, <laughs> you know, he's his total unfavorables are 45. Trump's 48. I mean, he's right on top of Trump. So the Democrats have basically decided you're part of that administration that we all loathe. Um, but he's at just comparison here. Even though he's at 30% favorable, Trump's at 42. So there's a 12-point gap. But Trump's 27% very favorable. Mike Pence is nine. Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm not a mathematician. That's three times <laughs> the amount of support. You did pretty good with that. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, that was you. fast. Um, the other thing is is – if you look, and, and you all can't see this, but you can if you go online and take a look at the results, the, the middle category, we, we say, we offer people a choice, neither favorable nor unfavorable, right? So so that number is not just people who don't know. There's a distinct, right, I don't know yeah. who that is. There's there's a distinct middle category. And nobody's really in the middle on Trump. Only 7% say they're not, neither yeah. favorable nor unfavorable. Um, Ron DeSantis is 13. Nikki Haley is 18. Um, Ramaswamy is 17. Hutchinson's 20. Pence is 19. For the you know former vice president, nineteen percent said they're neither favorable nor unfavorable. So, so while Pence is in a not in a great position compared to some of his potential competitors, um, he does have some opportunity there. I, I'm not quite sure what those people are waiting for. Um, yeah, you know. But to to your point earlier, Jim, uh, about you know, look, conservatism is Trump has defined conservatism. So I think either you or Josh was talking about Pence. Why are conservatives down? Uh, Pence is, is clearly, I think, objectively a more conservative, classically conservative candidate than Trump. But how he's reacted to Trump has defined him with conservative rather conservatives rather than his policy positions. That's perfect. Let's talk about the hodgepodge of conservatism. Right. Well, and in the, you know, and again, to bring some of the the qualitative to this, and you know, one of the anecdotal elements of that dynamic of you know, Trump reforming conservatism, even though, or, you know, having this impact on what we think of as conservatism in practical terms right now. 
was just such a bad break for for Pence. And, you know, I mean, there are many tales. You don't have to read, like, the most progressive of the accounts of this. Kind of across the board, lots of accounts of, you know, how Trump just kind of, you know, would make fun of Pence, you know, for his particular brand of of conservatism. And he just, you know, I mean, it's just such a bad break for the guy. So, all right, we, we don't have too much time left. Let's, let's look a little bit then at the zeitgeist in Texas you know, through the prism of legislative politics and what we found up here, found here, and like the way we we fra- we've been framing this in the rollout, um, I, I think we'll hold as you know we look more at these numbers and as we talk about it more, and and we were talking about this before we we started, you know, and there's a for all that we t- we talk all the time about the polarization of the parties, the polarization of a public agenda, and you know, the nature of the issues that are on there. We've been talking for, you know, since the end of the last legislature about the competition and the ideological undertones and the partisan undertones of trying to define the agenda for this legislative session. And so we have these lists that were put out by the governor's emergency items, Lieutenant Governor Patrick's 30 target items because 20 wasn't enough, and the governor's and the, and the Speaker of the House's 20 priority items. And we put together this list that we used and then asked people about in terms of what do you think is, you know, important for the legislature to act on. Yeah, and I mean, I think— right? yeah. And what did we get? You know, we got this, you know, this list of items, you know, and we were breaking it down and we broke it down in the rollout. You know, th- there's a list of things that 60% or more said it was extremely or very important for the legislature— to address and, and act on. And it wasn't all this red meat stuff at all. No, I mean, you know, it's the sort of stuff that like most normal people care about, right? It's like infrastructure, you know, I mean, the state, obviously people are still, you know, a little bit stressed by the grid collapse. That's something that like people did not forget about. And it's clear in the polling data, you know, we've been having lots of news and reports, at least where we are, but I think, you know, lived experiences where other people are of like the water going out, you know, yeah. for extended periods of time. You know, the state's dealing with- You're having to boil, you know. Boil no, water. You have water, but boil it. Yeah, just boil it twice, <laughs> you know. Uh, I mean, and some of it does match the agenda in terms of things like school safety and reducing property taxes, right? But it's true, you aren't, you know, I mean, we saw this a little a little bit of glimpse of this in the last poll, too. You know, we were looking kind of in particular at education priorities, yeah. you know, sort of what was at the top and what was at the bottom of that. But you also see this here, which is that, you know, people aren't necessarily clamoring for, you know, let's just say, like, I mean, just, I'm looking at, you know, ending COVID restrictions at this point, or, you know, something thinking about what's on the emergency item list, right? You know, prohibiting books, you know, in libraries is another one of these things that had a lot of discussion, a lot of attention, but this isn't high on the priority list for for large groups of voters for the most part. And, you know, and again, you have to break it down by party. And I think once you start bringing it down by party, you definitely do see, yeah. you know. Things I think, that are given pride of place through a partisan lens. Yeah. Sure. I mean, if you look at if you look at that list, and I think, you know, this is the point. I mean, for us, what we were trying to answer, I think, with a, with a battery like this, we're having them assess these priorities as stated by the leadership, you know, in, in both chambers and in, in both branches, is sort of trying to figure out, okay, Republicans are in charge. What needs to happen, right? I mean, it's kind of what we're serving. We were talking about this sort of various agenda space and what's going on, but we really want to know, you know, if you ask the voters, here's the list of things we're talking about, but like if they can only get done four of these, and we didn't ask it this way, we want to let them evaluate each of these, but like what rises to the top? And when you look at Republican voters, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a list that makes sense and I think reflects well on what's going on in the session, but it's border security spending. 
It's property taxes. It's parental oversight and education, is, and that specifically is, is a very popular, you know, I think just concept. Uh, and then the one other thing that really came up there, and I would say it was, you know, removing district attorneys who are not sort of, you know, enforcing laws, which I would put more broadly under the public safety umbrella, which has been a big part of Republican campaigns right. at least recently. For Democrats, it's infrastructure, it's education dollars, and it's abortion. That, that sounds about right. But there is still a lot of overlap. But that's the thing. There's still a yeah. ton of overlap even when we talk about those things, right? Right. Well, the, you know, look, I looked at this in even even a more simplistic way than Josh. And that's like they want you to they want you to keep <laughs> I'm the not sure how to take that. They want you to keep <laughs> the yeah, lights on. Means. They want you to keep the water clean. They want you to mm-hmm. educate the children and they want you to ensure the territorial integrity of the country. <laughs> these are not, you know, right. these are sort of meat and potato kinds of things and partly it's you know, when you ask those things and people, yes, people how important they are. But we didn't ask them thinking that uh, everybody was satisfied yeah. with how Texas is doing. Clearly, there's significant, if you take a look at the track numbers and the yeah. approval ratings. Yeah, we're still at about 50% wrong track. Right. The, which the, I want to say, I've been looking just on the trend. This is something interesting, which is that really ticked up. So, I mean, Texas was generally, voters generally would say when choosing between is Texas on the right track, wrong direction, you know, right track generally for most of the history of those 50 some odd polls, you know, outpaced wrong direction until about the summer of 21. Yeah. And it has sat in negative territory pretty much since then. Now, whether that relates to the end of that session, that special session on, yeah. other things, I don't know, but it's an interesting yeah. inflection point in the I, time I do, series. I, I do think, you know, look, at some level reality intrudes. And I think the cumulative effect of the grid going down and people freezing in their homes you know, public water supplies being suspect, the school shootings and the violence that we've seen on multiple occasions, both in El Paso and Uvalde and other places, um, the the ongoing crisis at the border. There's just a sense that government's just not getting it done. Um, yeah. And I think those are manifest in the track numbers. And, uh, you know, the, the ledge is approaching that as they always do with, with sort of, you know, surgical strikes on these issues. And you, you wonder if voters are impressed. My sense is, based on the numbers, that they're not paying that much attention. Well, and that's kind of, you know, I sent out a, a, a mailer this morning, you know, it's a little more, you know, whatever, sassy than what we put out on the bear, or what, I don't know how you'd want to, but I mean, to me, what what this tells us is, I mean, I, I agree with both of you in the sense that, you know, we've been talking, you know, us, the, you know, in various combinations for a long time about the cumulative impact of rapid population and economic growth in the state, you know, and I think that's part of what some of this is. I mean, some of it is crisis intervention, you know, I mean, a lot of the things you were talking about, Darren, I mean, I would, I would probably combine a couple of those, you know, the impact of the pandemic on public education and schools and people's experience of that. But it's interesting to me how fundamentally experiential this is, right? I mean, this is like not, you know, and it's not immune to elite queuing or leadership, but at some at some point, people are like going, you know what? Yeah, great. Thank you. Appreciate that you're saying you're paying attention to this. What I'm thinking about right now is that my power and my water were out for a few days. And yeah, it was a couple of years ago, but a pretty impactful experience, right? And I think that, I think people are still carrying that around. I mean, for a while, we'd... You know, I've been in some venues where I talk about the grid and people act like, are oh, you just being a partisan because you want to 
blame the Republicans, but I think it's much bigger than that. I think no, you're I, right. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, you I, know, I, you go back to, you know, I mean, I, I put this I, in response to something else. I was going back and looking at that item that I think we did in December about state government, look, you know, doing it. God, what was the exact item? You know, does, is state government, you know, doing a good job or are they dropping the ball essentially? Yeah. Well, there's a couple of careless, I mean, careless or careful people's tax dollars and looking out basically, like I think for people like- Yeah. The other one, it wasn't the tax, it was, it was the other yeah. one. But I mean, remember we got like oh, yeah. amazingly negative numbers. Yeah. In I love that careless, careful question, yeah. by the way. I, yeah. think, I think that's a real- Yeah. We did a, a paired one on that that was really quite good. And, you know, I just think that's still out there. And that doesn't mean that people are turning on- their partisanship, and we're not seeing any evidence of that. But people are pretty skeptical of government institutions. It's not just here, but there are. Sp- I, I think what this tells us is that those attitudes are seizing on certain things that are specific to Texas. You know, it's not we're not the only ones experiencing rapid growth, but these are the kinds of things that, in a rapid growth environment, in the political context we have here. There's a little bit of a crisis of responsiveness or skeptic. Crisis is too dramatic a word, but there's skepticism about responsiveness. And I think that there is a sense that what this tells me is that, and we kind of pitch the results of the poll this way. Right now, if you're watching the legislature closer, in all of these, in a lot of these areas, there are intra intra party fights going on in the legislature that are not even close to resolved about how they're going to address property taxes, what they're going to do about the grid, um, and, a, and a couple of, you know, I education. School, I would say school safety. I mean, you know. School safety. And, and, I mean, that legislation is still actively being written and argued over and changed a lot as we speak, literally today. And I think there's a big question about whether the leadership in the state is going to sort of produce what, – what is the minimal – viable product here that you can bring back that people are going to are going that these voters are going to go oh yeah they they did that now i i think the bet all along on the grid has been as long as it doesn't break again it's fine i think that yeah the i don't know that i'd predict that you're one major additional crisis away from the proverbial dam breaking, which is not the correct <laughs> metaphor yeah. given what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, a little, one a more little scary. One more dam break away from the dam breaking. Um, but I, I do get a sense, and you see this in Republican messaging on immigration, which is, well, it's the federal government that's not sort of giving us the tools here. Or, But I think there's a sense that, you know, again, you talk about the, the cumulative total of these issues, which is, all right, we seem to have a suspect supply of energy. We seem to have a suspect supply of clean water. I'm not sure the kids are getting educated. I'm not sure they're safe going yeah. to the public schools. Uh, you know, I'm not sure about walking downtown in Dallas or Austin or, or Houston these days. Um, exactly what is it I'm paying for, you know, from the, yeah. <laughs> with my property taxes. And, and, and in Texas, right. there was a sense, and Josh alluded to this, that, that the, the Texas model of government and its sort of general approach was, was doing much better than the national approach. And that was true until fairly recently. And it's, it's not, I don't think it's that, you know, people have made some sort of ideal, you know, there's been an ideological pivot. Right. I, I think it's just, well, wait a sec. Are we sure we're happy with the performance of the state government here? Um, and, you know, at, at some level that does become partisan, I, I guess. But I, yeah. I, I agree. It's it's a broader question about institutional functioning. And right. I, I don't think there's a lot of 
I think we're seeing a downtick in confidence. Well, let's say partisanship is a huge part of all of this. And in fact, actually, in fact, it probably is, you know, a huge contributor to what the, the challenge is here, right? I mean, on the one hand, you have a broader electorate that, you know, not surprisingly is more focused on, you know, whether the lights are going to stay on and whether the water is going to be clean than whether or not a kid they don't have is going to get a voucher or, you know, basically how the state is going to respond to, a, you know, probably less than half a percent of the population who has a different view about their gender, right? Like that's just not – it's not going to drive the generic voter to the polls, right, when they're kind of more concerned about these issues. At the same time, when you look at the issues that are like getting a lot of coverage in the press or getting a lot of attention, you know, why the chamber was cleared out last night, these issues are a big deal to the Republican primary electorate and to a lesser extent, but, but I mean still to very, very liberal voters, Right. And that's the thing. I mean, a lot of this other stuff is a lot more abstract to people. You know, when you're talking, we talked about this, we talked about kind of the positive education a couple of weeks ago in public opinion. You know, public education is a pretty abstract thing. And when you really think about the arguments that a lot of people are making, and we tested some of this stuff in the poll, we'll probably talk about this in another week, uh, you know, about the impact of some of these kinds of policies that are being discussed on public education. First of all, most people are like, I don't know. Right. Because why would they? You know, there's some things that are obviously good. Give the teachers more money. Sure. Most people think that would be a good idea. Give parents more oversight. You know, there's a reason that's, you know, that's good messaging in terms of mobilization among a Republican set of issues in a way that honestly speaks to a lot of Democrats, too, because who's against giving parents more oversight? But is that an issue that if they do or don't do, I'm going to change my vote? Probably not. But if the power goes out again, maybe so. Yeah. But the thing is, is it's hard because on the one hand, you know, you've got these very, you know, intense sort of, I would say, you know, heavily stakeholder driven fights, like in the case around property taxes, around, uh, yeah. you know, around the grid that, you know, the leadership yeah. needs to deal with, you know, in a lot of ways, in, in ways that really the question just at the end of it politically is, do the voters feel like they got a property tax right. cut? Do they feel like the grid is safer? You know, can I say that? And will it, will it be yeah. believable? And on the other hand, you've got this set of policies that is driving, you know, a smaller subset of people, but they're an important subset of people. And they're very intense on it. Crazy on both sides, right? And so, you know, you kind of come out of that and, and you sort of say, you know, and you kind of look at, I think the, the danger becomes which set of issues are they really focusing on in terms of how the overall electorate feels about it at some point. And I think that's the sort of thing we kind of go, and, yeah. again, you're at the end, but you kind of go back to like the Colin Allred thing. I'll just do it anyway, right? You say like, what's Colin Allred's approach here? If I'm looking at this poll right now and saying, why jump in now? I would say it's probably guns. You know, it's guns. It's probably the grid. And the fact that, you know, Cruz was on a plane out of Texas when the grid collapse happened and he's basically, you know, made his position on guns exceedingly clear in a state where more and more people are seeing guns as part of the problem. That becomes the the basis of something. Again, especially if overall the state is not necessarily, you know, uh, living up to its responsibilities. And the thing is, there's just more and more evidence of that. I mean, when you say right track, wrong direction, when you look at these sort of evaluations of, you know, the responsiveness of state government, and it's in an environment, I mean, you brought up this massive growth, where, you know, people aren't sure about how they feel about growth in the state, and Republicans are negative about the state's growth. And one of the interesting results in this poll, we've asked this question, I think, nine times, maybe more, 13 times since, I think, 2019, about people's views about the state's increasing racial and ethnic diversity. And this was the first poll in which a plurality said that the state's increasing racial and ethnic diversity is a cause for concern. So more people said that than it's a cause for optimism. That's the first time that's happened. It was, I think, the majority of Republicans. Yeah. And so there are these changes going on, and it's creating a lot of consternation on the right that I think, you know, the, the leadership and the legislature is trying to deal with and address and, and yeah. react to. 
at the same time, you know, they can't drop the ball on this other stuff, but it's this other stuff that they seem to kind of be dropping the ball on that's yeah. much more important. And I think that's a, yeah, there's a real public perception out there. And they're in, a, they're in a tough spot right now because as you implied there, and I was saying earlier, trying to produce something tangible that you can take to the voters and go, hey, we did this in response to your concerns. Very difficult right now because they're going to, they're probably going to, you know, I'd be surprised if they don't produce something on the grid, if there's not some form of property tax reduction. I mean, they will produce something. But the question is, will it meet the market? Yeah, not only will it meet the market, but I mean, the other side is, you know, how how much criticism will you be able to marshal against them? I mean, the problem is, is that you've got on the one hand this idea of like, well, we need to address the grid. And we had to ask another question about who should pay for it. Yeah. I'll tell you who nobody thinks should pay for it, ratepayers. But you know who's <laughs> going to pay for it? Ratepayers and taxpayers regardless and that's going to be, you know, a source of criticism regardless. Any sort of property tax cut is going to necessarily, you know, take some kind of money out of public education when most people think that, you know, the public education system could have more money in it and as teachers are, you know, sort of leaving the job. And that's another piece about this is when, you know, if they don't get the public education mix right and, you know, the teacher sort of shortage becomes a teacher crisis, all of a sudden that's another thing to add on the list of like basic state government functions that are not yeah. being reaching, you know – expectations, which I mean, obviously in our polling, people don't really rate the public education system here very highly to begin with. Yeah. So it's sort of, you know, you just sort of see it adding up. But I mean, to everything else we talk about, you know, negative partisanship is a hell of a thing, right? And so it's not as though... Right. Well, and the incentives, you know, I mean, the incentives to talk about that, the things that trigger negative partisanship are pretty high if, and, and, if and, you're an incumbent. And right widely now. available. Yeah. And yeah. And, and what the universe of those things is pretty clear. Darren, anything you anything really stick out to you? You want to you want to flag at the end before we get out of here? Oh, I always love gambling questions, Jim. I think you know that. Uh, <laughs> so uh, embedded within the uh, you know we've talked generally about both the twenty twenty four data as well as the priorities that voters said they had for the legislative session. Josh alluded to we have a battery of questions uh, on specific provisions on abortion as well as on public ed, and I'd encourage people to go take a look at those. But we also tested singular kind of one off. Um, pieces of legislation or policy proposals that have been floating around the session. And uh, two that tested amongst the bottom four, and we probably tested a couple dozen, <laughs> um, was uh, expand legal casino gambling, which was actually plus 15, right? It was 49% support, but 34% opposed. And if you don't have majority support before anybody starts talking about the negatives, that, that that's probably difficult. Josh, and and, and importantly, among Republicans, it was 46 40 yeah. So, I mean, if you right. want to say, like, why why isn't, you know, the lieutenant governor or anybody else really going out on a limb to expand casinos? It's because it's just not. Right. And then legalizing online betting is 38% support, 41 oppose. So, I always find these questions kind of interesting. We've had different versions of them over time. And if we're talking about d different revenue streams or, yeah. you know, in the case of online betting, uh, you know, sort of its own industry as well as spinning off money for the state – those don't seem to be options. That yeah, have this, this was not a session where, you know, the argument that we need the money was really going to carry the day. Mm -hmm. Right. We talked about that. Right. Going exactly. In. Yeah. I mean, I think there were two, you know, if not novel, you know, really counter, counter, you know, sort of attitudinal sets of results that really, I think, you know, just sort of, sort of speak to this sort of question about responsiveness. You know, we asked in this policy battery about two gun proposals and two questions about Medicaid, you know, one raising the age to purchase a firearm from 18 to 21, and then basically a description of red flag laws. 72% of Texans supported, you know, basically instituting red flag laws, including 88% of Democrats and 64% of Republicans. 
uh, on raising the age to purchase a firearm of 76 percent of Texans, 91 percent of Democrats, again, 64 percent of Republicans. On Medicaid expansion, uh, 73 percent of Texans were supportive of expanding eligibility for Medicaid, including 91 percent of Democrats, and again, 61 percent of Republicans. We have a similar question about uh, postpartum coverage under Medicaid or something the House has pushed yeah. for for 12 months. Showed similar numbers, and I think you know we spent years kind of. I, mean, I remember, like especially in the Rick Perry era, the idea of you know well, Medicaid's a dirty word. Yeah, you know, and it's just it. It was very interesting the poll, and maybe it's the pandemic. Who knows? You know, but you know, the, and I think with shootings, with the gun stuff, I think the you know there's sort of obvious evidence there. But with the Medicaid thing, it's interesting that you know we're sitting here now, and you see about almost two thirds of Republicans saying, "Yeah, expand eligibility for Medicaid." Yeah, I mean, I think. You know, part of the part of the explanation for that might be that we're just far enough away now from Obamacare and Medicaid being linked to that 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 may be also the political charge of that. I'm just not gone. We don't you, say the if, Affordable if you, Care Act or Obamacare. Yeah, if you were to stand up way, and say know. Obamacare now, there are some people that would go, eh, start throwing rocks and stuff. But I think that the share of those people is going down. Yeah, you know. But I, I think it's probably it almost certainly. What, what about you? Puzzle. You know, I I think if I was going to say anything, I would have probably pointed out just the margins on those two gun measures. Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard not to be struck by that. Um, you know, I think for a long time we said, you know, these mass shootings don't make that much difference. But I think we're beginning to see a little bit of a cumulative effect. Now, those two those two items have always pulled reasonably yeah. well, but the margins are getting bigger and they're getting a little bigger among Republicans. Yeah. I mean, the big things we asked this question about what factor is most to blame uh, for school yeah. shootings. We more or less repeated an item that we'd asked before in June 2018. And two of the responses relate to gun laws. And there's there's about 12 to 14 responses. And, you know, you can imagine Democrats generally coalesce around the gun related responses, you know, Republicans more around other things, mental health resources, you know, in terms of school shooting, the the role of the parents. But when we combine the share of people who say, you know, either lax gun laws or poor enforcement of existing gun laws are the factor most to blame. So something having to do with guns, June 2018 to April 2023, the share who say that went from 23% to 36% overall, among Democrats from 43 to 59%, among independents from 12 to 31%, and from Republicans from 5 to 14%, which still sounds low, but it's still almost a three- three-time yeah. increase. And you can, so, I mean, part of this is, you know, the accumulation of these, I mean, again, each individual event, maybe not, but the accumulation of these is starting to become, you know, more and more apparent and sort of people's attitudes about the causes of these things. And we always focus on the causes because if you want to know, again, from a political, you know, political standpoint, what does a solution look like? You kind of have to ask, well, what do people think the problem is? Yeah. Well, I, and, what, and yeah, what, are, what will they allow sort of cognitively as they explain these things to themselves? I mean, what's interesting about going ahead about the school safety question is, you know, what's almost without fail at the bottom of the list is is school building design. Yeah. Which you know, is, so the hardening the schools, that kind of thing is, is, you know, is usually pretty low down. And so it's going to be interesting to see again whether what they can accomplish is going to actually be what seems to be, a, you know, is going to actually meet the needs of what seems to be a pretty high priority in the electorate. Yeah, I think that's right. But I, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how much pressure is, you know, continues to be brought to bear on that. But uh, the word is that those bills are are not moving. Yep. So... On that front, Darren, thanks for coming in, spending some time with us. Always a pleasure. Happy end of the semester. You too. Thank you, sir. Josh, glad you could make it. Yeah. was worried about your health. Thanks for all the work on this. Uh, good to have it out. And thank you for listening. Thanks, as always, to our excellent technical staff here in the, in the uh, Liberal Arts Development Studio and in our 
excellent audio studio, which we spent a lot of time in over the years. Um, if you are interested in these results, which by now I hope you still are, uh, you can see the rollout in the poll results at texaspolitics.utexas.edu. There are lots of pointers. Go to the blog section. You'll see the post. Thousands of graphics, all the data, all the documents, um, and lots and lots to look at. So thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week with another Second Reading Podcast. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.